Welcome to Imagining the Future of Theological Education, a conversation bringing together diverse perspectives on theological education in America today. This podcast series is coming to you from Christian Theological Seminary and with the support from the Henry Luce Foundation. I'm Dr. David Malott, President of Christian Theological Seminary, and my co-host is Dr. Deborah Mullen, Leadership Education Consultant and Professor Emerita at Columbia Theological Seminary. In a series of conversations, Deb and I have been speaking with some of the folks who are part of our study group and other leaders who are informing the future of theological education. We'll chat with faculty members, senior administrators, as well as researchers and representatives of foundations, exploring provocative questions related to scholarship, leadership, and theological education. And while our conversations will span a vast range of topics, one singular thread will run through every episode. Imagining what the future of theological education could and should look like. So welcome to the conversation. Thank you, David, and welcome to our listeners. thought it would be good to start with a little background about how this podcast series came to be. We want to give thanks for a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation in 2017 that allowed David and I to begin hosting a series of consultations across the country on the current and future direction in theological education. It was actually during these conversations and research, it became quite clear that while institutions face diverse issues, they share a common challenge to think strategically and imaginatively about the future, given the landscape of theological education today. So as the grant wrapped up, we were inspired to widen the conversation in order to share insights we've gleaned with others involved in theological education and how our work is evolving. Our guests today are Dr. Boyan Lee, Vice President of Academic Affairs and Dean of Iliff School of Theology in Denver, and Dr. Michael Gilligan, President Emeritus of the Henry Luce Foundation in New York City. Today we'll be discussing several topics, including the next evolution in faculty composition and theological programs, international students, and the extent to which theological programs are serving LGBTQIA students and their needs. Welcome, Michael and Boyan. Thank you. Thank you. Let's get started. Um, the first question, what are the factors in the current landscape of theological education that you think demand changes in faculty composition and development? And second part of that would be, what are some of those changes? Well, Young, maybe you want to take the lead on that. Sure, since I'm in it right now. I think two things. One is the format. Second is the value. The current format of theological education that we have been living with is very much coming from 19th century German higher education model and in theological context, Schleiermark's practical theological framework. And it worked for a long time, but this is not 19th century Germany or this is not early 20th century United States. This is a 21st century United States in global context and also global pandemic and uh, global Black Lives Matter movement era. And so when I said in terms of a format and uh, values, what we require, that is also uh, very much embedded in the theological education values from the past, that, you know, the purpose of theological education, especially in this country, when theological divinity schools started, uh, it was mainly to educate pastors of plantation owners. And as this country's higher education started to educate their children. So this embedded white nationalism, white supremacy, or embedded racism hierarchy, 
whether we buy into that value or not, but it has been part of the system as a foundational value. And now we live in an era that the USA makeup of the population is shifting. And also people are more conscious of racism within the system of the government and our society, including higher education. And so what we teach in terms of as a classic, which has been very close to what Schleimark offered in 19th century, and also, you know, certain values of this country's white worldview is also very, very like a heterosexist and cisgender worldviews have been shaping this education. And those of us, you know, someone like me who is not coming from this context, uh, who is a person of a color, woman of a color from Korea, I also have been educated within this system. When I realized what's going on, I have been fighting against it. So, but that fighting against within the system, I think has reached its limits right now, which is expressed through this police brutality against the black people and brown people and indigenous people. So to address these systemic value issues and also format issues in terms of theological education structure, we need to rethink about what are the values and what values that we want to teach so that our students become transformative leaders in this era, Black Lives Matter era and social justice that brings the solidarity across racial boundaries and class boundaries, all that. And so we need to rethink about those values and whether we have also right format uh, contents. And so that requires a different recruitment, different faculty makeup, different structure of a theological education. And at least and that's in the conversations that we at ILIF are seriously engaging these days. Let me push on that a little bit. I think you've said so many things that are absolutely critical for us to attend to and for our listeners to train their ears on. But I want to push a little bit because I think while you have diagnosed the situation in a way that is absolutely approachable, the kinds of things you're talking about are deeply embedded, not just in the current culture of the schools, but in doctoral education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. So ask more specific questions that I could address then. Well, I think the kinds of normal training we, we do. Yeah. So that all begins in doctoral programs, many of which take place in university mm-hmm. and divinity schools. Yeah. So my question is, while you diagnose well all that is going on on the ground, I want to push it back a little bit and talk about some of the implications of doctoral education programs, of which you are the beneficiary, Madam Dean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this Madam Dean is a trying hard to change that formation uh, part two, which is a pipeline for future theological education. So using ILIF as an example, we have a joint PhD program with the University of Denver. So we are fortunate to have a very diverse pool of faculty across the university, across ILIF School of Theology, because it's a very interdisciplinary, and I would say it's a very transdisciplinary PhD program. So several years ago, we changed the curriculum. So it is not according to disciplinary boundaries. It is a very interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary boundaries. And we, our students work with someone in law school, school in so, you know, social work and international studies uh, faculty who are all committed to religious dimensions of uh, those value systems. 
And so I think we are doing some important work. And then also we are very committed to student mentoring. So uh, thanks to the generosity of Wabash and FTE, we have been providing systematic mentoring programs. So we have been having students of a color mentoring program. This year, we are studying international students of a color mentoring program because racism is not clearly in their mind, although, you know, they are international students of color. And suddenly when they are in the United States, they become people of a color. And so what different values and also we need to have this transnational conversations on race. So we bring our, our white students to that conversation in different phase of our mentoring programs. And also we went through faculty conversation on mentoring and then especially what are the needs of our students of a color that have become focused. So we had a consultants for the last two years to lead the process with us. So the work is evolving because there is no fixed model of a doctoral education. So that's one example that I can provide. Thank you. You're talking about a major construction and deconstruction project, and I think that's just brilliant. Thank you. Dr. Gilligan, Michael, anything to add to that? Deb, thanks. Thanks for the invitation in general. This was a wonderful conversation over a couple of years, and I'm delighted to join you again. As Boyang is saying, I think it's a moment of particular urgency in these questions about faculty composition and kind of ongoing faculty development. Faculty have always been, I think, models of lifelong learning particularly in their own disciplines and their own research areas, but they've also been formed over a lifetime by contact with our students. Faculty have been adaptive, but maybe it's the rate of change. Maybe it's the particular urgency of issues that Young described so powerfully. We need to attend to this in a new way. And so I think that um, there's urgency in academic institutions of theological education, in the traditionally structured graduate models of theological education. There's a real need right now to balance the need for right-sizing of a faculty, to know what kind of a faculty, you know, would be the cohort. And um, when you're thinking about faculty altogether as a collective, as a cohort, but also a need to make sure that the faculty really represents the breadth and the richness of humanity in order to be able to model that for students. And so we've typically thought of faculty development in terms of credentialing and ongoing education, as you're referring to issues about doctoral education. But it's very clear that right now faculty have to balance acutely. Obviously, there is a kind of expertise and a continuing development within a particular expertise, but there also is an ability to work with students whoever they are, wherever they come from, whatever degrees they're in, formal and informal, a need to collaborate widely. And Boyang was just talking about the kind of interdisciplinary structure of the ILA faculty, but to collaborate within an academic setting and beyond the academic setting, beyond the borders of the academy. And then I think a much greater need for faculty to engage the world, or the world of the academy, but the world beyond the academy. And this is a different demand for faculty of many kinds, where the primary audience is not one's students and one's religious tradition or denomination and one's guild, but suddenly it's a whole world that has to be engaged. And so I'm confident that schools are dealing with this, but they're also under tremendous pressure, in some ways, sometimes just to survive and to make sure that this work of the faculty is well supported and that faculty are being treated justly as well. In the past, there was a sort of privileging of certain disciplines and certain areas of expertise, and that there was a kind of hierarchy within 
theological faculty and within university faculties as well, and a kind of discrediting of engagement, discrediting of practical fields, what were called practical. And so that that term, it was sort of like people who worked in teacher education were not seen as serious as people who were involved in doctoral research. And that this is a moment of remaking that, that clearly, given the needs of our world, everyone's work in theological education is practical. And if it's not practical, then what is it? You know, because it's a practice of transformation that we're all engaged in. And that's a new calling in a certain way for theological faculty, I would say. And I think the point you're making also highlights, I think, a kind of challenge regarding our epistemic framework. In other words, how we count on knowledge, where knowledge comes from, that somehow knowledge can't come from the actual practice of ministry or the engagement with the world, but it can only come from theoretical studies. And so I think that epistemic framework change is quite significant for faculties to navigate, especially when the professors come from institutions that often don't value multiple epistemologies. This week, David, I encountered a line from an 1862 essay by Henry David Thoreau that I had forgotten, where he says, we cannot afford not to live in the present, and that people are particularly blessed if they don't waste a moment of their passing life on thinking too much about the past. I think that that's what we're talking about, is a kind of reality-based approach. And it's always been a kind of a sense of richness of reality, but an acuteness of that in terms of the needs of the time. I want to take us to another conversation that's related, I mean, in some ways, but uh, when we're thinking about international theological education, which has become pretty prominent in the United States, engagement with international students and educational programs in other countries. And I'm wondering, what do you see as the current threats and opportunities when it comes to international theological education? Let me see if I can be brief about this, because we're talking about tremendous opportunities for learning and for service, but probably conceived in increasingly new ways, thinking about those opportunities. And so I think that for a long time, we thought of international theological education in an institutional way. I'm talking now about institutions rather than about the movement of students. But we tended to think about sort of hub and spokes models, where there were kind of centers of learning and that they were reaching out to places that needed additional resources, but that all were within their network. We've seen tremendous examples of that that have been highly effective. I think that the work of the Church of the Nazarene worldwide, using their little seminary in Kansas City to kind of fuel an entire system of educators around the world, or the way that the Seventh-day Adventists have done it in the Caribbean region, from one world headquarters in Berrien Springs, eventually seeding a new kind of a network. But because of the discrepancy of resources in the places where we work, there are tremendous risks of a kind of hub-and-spokes model that it would be exploitative of the richness that we find elsewhere, almost like mining and coal fields throughout the world or an oil field throughout the world, that there's risk of exploiting the resources of developing nations where religious traditions may be particularly strong. And there's also the risk of colonialism, of saying that our understandings of authority in the kind of originating institution of international collaboration ought to be the systems of authority elsewhere and not to listen hard enough to systems elsewhere. So those are some of the risks. Let me turn to Boyang to talk a little bit more about the opportunities that she's finding. I think what, Michael, you described can also be an opportunity because of this pandemic, but even before pandemic, the immigration policy of this country 
that many schools that have been thriving by uh, international student presence are struggling, not only theological schools, but higher education in general, especially most institutions hit more this time is where they had many students from Asia, especially China. And so their visa and the sorts of policy and pandemic, so that everyone is really struggling. So I say this as an opportunity because what Michael said that is exploitation and we bring in international students as a major income source without providing support or without welcoming them in a way that they need to be welcomed. It's very patronizing welcoming, which I also experienced as an international student myself <laughs> some years ago. So this pause, I think, give institutions time to think about how best to serve international students in a way to transform the way we think about theological education beyond as a, one of the major sources of income. So what do we need to do? So these days, we know that one institution, a student, in a group of international students led a protest about the lack of support that that institution says is providing and getting rid of faculty who works with international students. And so students are not, you know, passive recipients like in the past. International students in the past, including myself, we are here to get degrees. So mm-hmm. we intend to go back to our country and do our work there. And many international students used to have a job promise already there. So just, to, you know, do your degree and return and therefore not investing time and part in reshaping of the school's culture here. But that's not the case any longer. Even, you know, this Black Lives Matter and also LGBTQIA advocacy work, when things are happening in the United States, I also see, you know, in Korean newspapers, Taiwan's newspaper, Hong Kong's newspaper, people are doing the solidarity movement. So our students are globally educated even before they come to here. So I think that this is an important opportunity for our institutions to think about how we not go with traditional exploitation model of international students, but how can our students, our institution can be transformed by their different perspectives and experiences by being really, truly hospitable institution. That piece, Boyang, has been really resonant for you and me, I think, working with the United Board. Yes. You know, and so so working with institutions across different parts of Asia, you know, where in North America, we're so used to Christians being, if not in the majority, at least a significant presence and where mainline Christians have not thought of themselves as particularly embattled. But then welcoming students or working with students in institutions where been much more defensiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, last summer, Michael and I happened to be in the Philippines together for about almost two weeks. Mm-hmm. And we started our learning journey as members of a board of trustees of a United Board for Christian Higher Education in Asia. In Mindanao, the region in the Philippines are known for violent extremism between mm-hmm. Christians and Muslims. So we are hosted by a Jesuit university in a very, very poor area. You know, Philippines is a poor country to begin mm-hmm. with, and the Mindanao is even poorer. And But there, we have seen most transformative higher education model, at least for me, and such inspiring leader who is a leading transformation, not based on what's known values, but very committed to the school's Jesuit mission plus local culture, honoring local culture and local people, even including putting a small piece of artwork in the world of the inst- in a building is created by local artists with a community to interreligious piece work there. 
And so their transformative work, the training includes even ground people on campus to president. And everyone was just so touched by what we are seeing there. I think there is a deep connection between this conversation and the first conversation around faculty composition, in part because one of the things that I noticed is that if we're going to kind of dislodge some of the kind of hegemonic theological trends that have been around for a long time, it's going to require, in many ways, an international group of people really wrestling with the way in which Christianity tells its story, especially in this country. So, in other words, that from the very beginning, there were problems and challenges and complexities, ethnic complexities, that have been pretty much glossed over. And so we continue to tell a kind of narrative that's standardized, and then we continue to critique it at the end with a course in Black theology or Asian theology or queer theology, which requires, again, This all goes back to what Deb was talking about in terms of thinking about how people are trained in PhD programs around theology and the related disciplines and a kind of resistance still to start with the complexity from the beginning rather than wait until the end. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you're talking about here. And to name it complexity rather than problematic and problematize it. I mean, this conversation reaches deeply inside of me for my 35 years in theological education, most of which deaning in two institutions. And in the process of, in both schools, having a very robust international students program, at the same time that we in American theological education are realizing that the movement of Christianity has moved considerably south and east. And I don't want us to lose that point. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that international students come as minority students or others and so forth, they represent the majority of the Christian experience in the world. And somehow we have to begin to get our heads around that in terms of how faculty treat our international students or what they know about our international students. And I believe it's all a great opportunity, but it's got to be midwife. You know, it's got to be attended to. Deb, I think that you and I were at a biennial meeting at the ATS in the 1990s together, where in the midst of a conversation about the renewal of the accrediting standards for graduate theological education, Del Tar, who was a kind of renegade, the president of the Assemblies of God Seminary in Springfield, Missouri, talked exactly about that, you know, about the movement of the spirit in the world and said that he would not, I mean, he, he, was, he was basically laying down the gauntlet around the accrediting standards and said, I would, will not let these North American standards of theological education constrain the work of the spirit in the world. I think there's a growing awareness, you know, among our faculty members, among our students, among the people who support our schools, that we exist in the midst of tremendous movement of the spirit in the world, but that it's coming from places that we had not granted authority to in the past, and that we need to recognize that authority. That's right. And the we is North American, Western, theological, epistemic, you know. White men (laughs) of a certain age with PhDs from distinguished institutions. And it goes on and on. Yeah. But straight. The the good news is, I think, after the board at the ATS, after serving for six or seven years and being engaged in it before that, the good news is that conversation, I don't think, would ever happen again. Yeah. Certainly yeah. not on the floor of a biennial. Right. Because there's a, the world has changed. 
the world and the ATS has changed. It's changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Pentecostals, evangelicals, you know, Roman Catholics are now much more a voice to be heard. And, that's exciting. Right? I think that certainly is what's going on. You know, there's this new word. Maybe it's not new, but everybody seems to have caught on to this intersectionality. Yeah. That really is the stream of consciousness, I think, running through this whole panel here in our conversation. Um, more so here than maybe in some other places, David, that we have hosted these conversations. And I'd raise that because of the next area, if we're ready to move to it, that we wanted to query you about. And the way we have framed this is we've seen a significant increase in students who identify as LGBTQIA in theological programs and an increase in queer theological publications. So our question is, to what extent has theological education changed because of these realities? Or is it changing, maybe, is more uh, appropriate because of these realities? Let me respond. I was a faculty member before I left where almost 50% of uh, on-campus students identified themselves as LGBTQIA members. And so it was a, such a great training for me. And I thought that was very progressive one. But one of the first challenges that I received in my first class, I don't remember what I said, but students said that what I said, I excluded him because he was transgender. And I operated out of such a binary worldview, even though I mentioned the LGBTQIA. And when students pointed that to me during break, I just wanted to, uh, you know, crawl into a hall and hide. And how could I dismiss a student uh, in my presence, in my classroom, when I present myself as a progressive feminist educator? Currently, I live about one third of our students are identifying the LGBTQIA members. And so personally or institutionally, it really challenges not only institutions to do anti-racism work, but very intersectionally, heteronormative worldviews and assumptions also embedded in a racist or hierarchical model. And so I think our LGBTQIA students have been great teachers for institutions to recognize heteropatriarchy, heteronormativity that is not often mentioned in the conversations. And also often when institution is going through some serious anti-racism conversation, often as if LGBTQIA rights is uh, something colliding with it rather than as an integrated justice voice. So I have seen many institutions resisting to this serious justice work using either side as a way not to engage the work. And so having seen some of those examples myself too, I think LGBTQIA movements, is, as I said, challenging us to still undo some of the other assumptions that embedded in our theology, education, mission, and values. But also, as we all know, that queer theology is much more than sexuality, much more than LGBTQIA rights. And queer theology is really reshaping and reframing what we have been regarded as a normative things in a very different way. And therefore, it's opening up very different words that we haven't recognized before, even though it has been there. And it gives us opportunity to reread a Bible, to re-understand Christian doctrines and theologies and practices. And because, you know, we don't live with that, it challenges us not to live with either or binaries. You know, you went right to the place that your conversation was leading me in my thoughts, which is 
part of the reason there is this kind of artificial framework of contention set up on either side of the others is because the thing in the middle hasn't changed. The thing in the middle is still seen as belonging to us. And so anything that then begins to penetrate that, begins to threaten that, and instead of being able to open the space as you're talking about because of some of the just amazing interventions of queer theology, and I'm so glad you distinguish and say that's not only about sexuality, identity, and gender, but it is about a way of seeing the world. I used to teach a class called Queer Fear and Faithful Descent. It was the signature sexuality class, but it was so much more than that. Because I said, you know, there's an epistemology that can argue that the way Jesus moved through the world was queer. I'm aware that our conversation is limited in time, and this is so rich. It strikes me that probably in the 35 years that I've been involved in seminary education, that this is one of the pieces that has changed the most rapidly in the conversation, that there are abiding needs. I mean, I think that every student who comes to us in graduate theological education brings the same pair of issues that everybody does in formation. And one of those is kind of for a greater sense of identity, uh, clarity about who one is and, and where one fits in the world. And we see that strongly, I think, with LGBTQI students coming to us, wanting affirmation, but also wanting exploration, wanting growth and a sense of identity. And the other is this really strong need to find where one fits, where one belongs, where one can find a community. And that's been a challenge for theological institutions across the theological spectrum to make space for that growth in identity and also to assure a place of belonging. Just as a sign of how much things have changed and how much things still need to change, I was remembering as we were preparing for today, a talk that I heard Peter Gomes give to the American Bible Society in the late 1990s. And it was right after the death of Matthew Shepard. And Gomes, who by that time had come out as a gay man, said that in the 1850s, it was perfectly respectable to believe that you could take either stance about the abolition of slavery and still be authentically Christian. Uh, he was speaking to the American Bible Society, remember when he said this, and he said that in 1998, 1999, the time of the death of Matthew Shepard, we no longer, anyone believed that it was possible to take different positions on the abolition of slavery as a Christian. He said, but in 1998, 1999, it still is believed that you can take different positions on the rights and freedoms of LGBTQ people and still be Christian. I think that in the last 25 years, we've seen a great change in that, but I think that we still have a lot of work to do. And that I think that some of that is being led specifically by students who bring their whole selves to this work and by faculty who are prepared to welcome them. But also, I think, as Boyan is describing, by really thoughtful f folks, I mean, Kathy Talbacchia's work on coming out, kind of as a practice, as an ethical practice, as an erotic practice, I think challenges even some of her peers in queer theologies that we really are talking about multiple voices and multiple experiences and that the student sense of identity, the kind of threats that they feel in the world need to be held delicately as we continue this work. I think that's probably one of the things I would add to the conversation is, is that the challenge of continually trying to shift, as I think Mo Young was indicating, both of you are indicating, to the larger conversation that all of us are trying to figure out how to be gendered people in the world. Yeah. That, like this constant shift of making this a problem about LGBTQ people 
continues to happen and we've got to figure out it's just as if race is just about what happens to people of color like no race is about all of us we sexuality and sexual orientation is about all of us and so we've got to continue to direct people's attention and energies in that way we've got a few minutes left and so not many minutes but we would love to hear from both of you imagining the future of theological education what would you like to see happen I think I'm already seeing some of the happenings. So the constant question that I or some of my colleagues here are asking, what theology means this time and era? Because we are not doing theological education to provide a pipeline of ministers for churches any longer. We are doing much beyond that. Then how can we make a theology, the, you know, the importance, the relevance of a theology available to larger audience? And what are new formats and deliveries and what new imaginations that it requires? So we are engaging a very active question on that. And we are experimenting successfully with some public facing courses. So in like ILF, we are studying continuing ethics education for public accountants who needs to take a ethics class very broadly defined. But I think the progress with theological perspectives have some important things to say to those general public. So how can we balance educating theologically trained leaders, but also making theology shaping the worldviews by bringing that to the, the audience that we haven't worked with before? So some new model probably will emerge. Let me piggyback on exactly, Boyan, what you're saying. I, my great hope for the future is that we'll still have theological education, that theological education, I think, is a gift to us and to the world, but that we are going to see it, we already see it in multiple settings, in multiple models that need to be seen as cooperating rather than competing, and that can be that there are not certain models that would be privileged over others but that they could be mutually respectful because the outcomes we need are serious. We have a responsibility to prepare people for increasing spiritual leadership. We hope that not just that we're providing credentials, but that we're providing a kind of formation for depth in one's spiritual experience and a kind of openness to spiritual experience over a lifetime. We also have a responsibility in the academy to assure the credibility of religious voices in the public square by real intellectual integrity and constant growth. And it's been very clear, I think, particularly in this political season, that there's a great need for a formation of folks for moral leadership. The death of John Lewis lately reminded us of this, that our society yearns for strong moral voices leading the cause of justice, that we really are on the march still, and that institutions of theological education can provide communities where people will grow in that sense of identity for responsibility and opportunity for moral leadership in the world. And so that's what I hope for, is more of what we have and gentleness with one another and respect for one another as we grow in those ways. Thank you, Michael, for that very, very prescient summary. One of the things that came through to us in our two-year study, three years we were together, actually, thanks to the Luce Foundation, was that much of the conversation about the demise of theological education is premature. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, much of that hand-wringing has to do with institutions that have lost their way. But what we saw was the vitality in these communities and affiliations that institutions that are concerned about longevity are embracing. 
so that it's no longer just the institution that guarantees that you can have a moral leader, you know, a well-educated leader, and someone who can actually speak to the world. But this collaboration that I think you spoke of early on with communities and different faith traditions different than have been dominant and have been the sort of normative spaces where theological education is going on. And those places are open and welcoming. I don't think that's an overstatement, David, that what we heard is, you know, we are here and, you know, we're in communities with seminaries and we would love to partner, you know, with seminaries and divinity schools. Absolutely. So to that end, and of course, now we're at the end of our time together. And we want to thank you, Dr. Lee and Dr. Gilligan, for joining us today, because you have, as we expected, given us a lot to think about, as well as some hope, lots of hope, as we face the future of theological education. So we, you know, fully imagine the future will, of this conversation will continue, and that you all will continue to be part of it. This is by no means over. And we want to say to our listeners, please stay tuned. No matter where you pick up one of these episodes, we hope that you will keep us close at hand on your podcast station and listen as we think together into the future. Please join us. 